In times like these, being a citizen is a big job. Thank you for joining us to celebrate the virtues of self-rule and debate the state of our republic. Welcome to the Citizen's Prerogative Podcast. This is the voice of your nerdy host, Michael Piscatelli, and we are blessed with a co-host whose passion for our republic precedes him everywhere he goes, Raymond Wong Jr. Thank you, thank you. I do believe that the universal basic income will bring us to true constitutional tranquility. Ah, I like that word, tranquility. That's that's a good goal. Thank you for that lead-in, Ray. This is uh, episode number 27. We're still in season two. And so far, the title of this episode is Minding the Gap with Supplemental Income. So earlier on, when we kicked off this latest series of threes or fours, we had mentioned that um, we'd be revisiting supplemental income. And we're going to do that in today's episode briefly in our new format. Um, but we're also going to commit to and promise to you all that there will be more and more to come on on universal basic income, supplemental basic income, whatever the terminology is uh, in the future. Because there's a whole slew of programs that recently got kicked off during the pandemic um, from you know the Bay Area, probably across the country. Uh, and we want to do a pull up on a lot of those programs to see, okay, what are they doing? How is it working? And and what are some of the results looking like? We'll have to see what the time horizon is. Some of these programs are um, a year up to five years, I think might have been the longest one I've seen. So it'll be really interesting to see um, how well these programs are working and if it even makes sense to, to kind of cut them up the way they are, because a lot of the programs that got implemented have picked slices of individuals, mostly because um, the funding is all private, as far as I know. There are no public funds in any of these test programs, these pilot programs for universal basic income. It's all private funds from wealthy donors and um, organizations. Like for instance, in San Francisco, one of the one of the UBI programs, there's more than one in San Francisco right now that was kicked off, is funded by an entity called Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. And Yerba Buena Center for the Arts is like a nonprofit major installation and they do all kinds of types of um, dance shows and exhibits and, and things like that. You know, it's think of it like a MoMA, think of it like a Museum of Modern Art, but it's mostly for dance and whatnot. Long story short, their program specifically that they've funded has limited funding. They've selected a number, uh, a fixed number of individuals. I don't, I, I think it might've been lottery to some degree and it's only artists. So they're only, all they funded was an X number of year program specifically for artists in San Francisco, I believe. So we'll look at more of that and see how they've cut it up. And it's it's interesting to see um, if by virtue of them carving out a niche, does it make it more or less effective? That I think that will be a fascinating side effect of the way these studies are being conducted. But ultimately, um, I will be surprised if there's any evidence that indicates we shouldn't have a program like this and even more broadly than these individual programs are going. So, and I think, Ray, do you agree? I think our vision is like a little bit more global, but it's good to have data to inform it's, it. 
and I appreciate you bringing in the local studies and I know we won't get deep into it this round, but I stress to everyone that we are, we are going there anyways, because uh, constitutionally there's no capacity in the constitution, the U S constitution, or even state constitutions for homelessness. There's absolutely no constitution that says homelessness is a thing and that it's, it's allowed right. to exist, right? That's a, it's a right for there to be right. homeless. You have a right to homelessness. Like you have a right, right yeah. to work. <laughs> there's only good news, like welfare and tranquility. Like I said before, there's only good news in the constitution. So, so far the courts have been ruling against these cities who are chasing homeless people from city park to city park, to state land, to state land. The courts have said, well, what are you going to do state? You have all this land and no homes for people. Uh, it, it, this yeah. is a con- I think and that- you're not putting it to productive use because I think over time the courts have always leaned towards giving rights to individuals who put land to use, just generally. <laughs> and our passion will be, and I, and I will remain focused around solutions. And and anyone that I engage with these days, I, I do push on them for what their alternative is, because it is not about, no, UBI does not work, or no, we cannot, people are, are lazy and X, Y, Z. That is just your feelings. That's your personal truth, which we're going to acknowledge and respect, but then we're going to put the right, correct wall between it to say what your feelings may not be reality, and it's not your choice what people do with their money and what their frankly, their pursuit of happiness looks like. Why are we so obsessed with what everybody's pursuit of happiness looks like? Your definition is not one size fits all. This isn't a glove. You know, I'm glad you brought that up, Ray, because that knocked something off a shelf in my mind around bias and questioning the stories we've been told and that we continue to tell ourselves. Because that story is one that we were told to tell ourselves to justify homelessness. It's their fault, right, in a way, which isn't healthy. Um, it's just a way to, to not address the problem. The problem is real. We can see it. And like you said, let's come to the table with solutions. If you want to tear down UBI as a solution, well, then you better be replacing it with something better. I'm all ears, <laughs> but homelessness is not an artifact of reality. It's an artifact of our system. Because if you think about homesteaders, if you think about anything, we we were a people that lived off the land in the United States. People moved here to come live on the land, work the land, et cetera, right? Natives didn't. That was the big conflict between us. We settled on land and we improved in it on the on the land in place. Natives were a little more, a little bit more scattered, a little bit more hunter gatherer, but not in that same sense. You know, I don't want to, their cultures are complicated, but as long as we've been settling on the land, I think I've made this point before, we've always been able to, you, you could sustain your family and your, and your life and your livelihood living off of the land. And we don't do that much anymore. And anybody who does do it has probably got big ag coming down the street. If, if they haven't already bought your farm, they're coming for your farm. Um, I think it's the complexity of the economy, right? We've now become, and I do have, we do have to lend that. If we think about the cities and not even American cities, let's think about the Asian cities of the world where you have so many, there, there's not enough land 
to be farmed, to be physically farmed. So we cannot all be homesteaders, but I'm glad you brought that up, Mike, because uh, the Homestead Act, that is a situation of where it's just an example of not your universal basic income, but where the nation first toyed with the idea that you can grant something to your people and treat and let them choose what to do with it responsibly. Let them decide to succeed or fail on their own. You can just give them the keys to the land, right? You gave them the stake in the ground. The Homestead Act is, is a perfect example of not socialism, but, but an idea of the government sometimes, or maybe will in the future, have a place to provide a stable ground. Yeah, in a way, it's kind of like distribution of wealth. Um, you know, because for the most part in the United States, wealth has historically been tied to land ownership. And I would argue that the same is true today. I mean, there's a lot of companies out there, right? All of their wealth and all their money comes through land ownership. And I think of the Monopoly game, um, partially because of the donut economics. <laughs> um, but that whole idea of, of, of Monopoly is like the first person to show up is now, now controls the wealth. You now control the land. Anybody who comes after you has to pay you rent. So it's this first come, first serve wealth thing that we also have to move away from or we have to do it in an equitable way right because it's just not fair that you know so what years and years ago during the homestead act a certain family decided to make the choice to move west and they acquired thousands of acres of land simply by occupying it by simply occupying and improving that land well today that family if they've handed down that land and any um, wealth that they've generated from owning the land to their families. How fair is it that they've retained that? You know, and I'm not saying it needs to be taken away, but I think we can all recognize just because they were the first one there doesn't mean the fact that they're wealthy astronomically today compared to everyone else means it's fair. This first come, and, and we see it in technology, we see it in new industries, and it's a risky business, right? Technology moves into an area where we have not legislated, where generally people aren't aware of things, right? Whether it be oil, cocaine, railroads, technology, the first to discover it rules it. Eventually, legislation and everything catches up because we learn, well, how is it good? How is it bad? Are there side effects? Are there consequences? And now we have to mitigate it, right? If it goes out of control. So now we're seeing that these unfettered information streams, information I'll use in air quotes, but these social media systems, right? There's a consequence. January 6th, I would say, <laughs> is a penultimate consequence of unfettered, unregulated, unthoughtful management of that ecosystem, and we just know going forward into the future that there's going to have to now be a debate that wasn't happening necessarily in the same way before. That is just an example of something that's happened before and will happen again. And UBI, you know, <laughs> is, is a mechanism to help mitigate the worst of the consequences or side effects of things that we didn't understand when we implemented this thing years ago right? We put a system in place, we turned it on, and we let it go, and we've tinkered with it and played with it, but we haven't really tuned it up a whole lot 
since that time. And we've seen the evidence of where it runs. It runs kind of into the ground for a lot of people, right? Bankruptcy is built into the system. It's an artifact of the system. Poverty is an artifact of the system. All of, all of the things that we go without are an artifact of a deficiency in the system that we've put in place. And this is where UBI and those concepts are coming in to say, okay, now we need to adjust. We need to correct for this problem. And to be honest, and we've made this case before, it's going to get a little worse before it gets better because of automation. So we don't have a choice. We can't not look at these things because <laughs> we need solutions. And if you aren't feeling the pain today, there's a very, <clears throat> excuse me, a very strong chance you're going to feel pain from this in the future, right? Anybody who's not on the cutting edge, if you're not the surfer on the wave, you're left behind. And that's not a sustainable way to do things. We still want to encourage people to be on the cutting edge. We don't want to penalize innovation. That's not the point. But the point is, is to try and stop leaving so many people behind because it doesn't have to be that way. And it's not people's choice. So back to the bias point, I want everyone to think about, you know, when you look at someone who's downtrodden, it's what happened to that person. It's not what's wrong with that person. Any one of us can be that person tomorrow. And I know you're shaking your head and you're thinking, oh, that would never happen to me. But you don't know that. And our system is set up to allow anybody to become that person. I mean, the richest people in the world like become poor at times if they don't manage their wealth well enough because the system's always willing to reallocate those resources. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I feel like I was on soap up. I'm going to pause there. There's a lot of people who are concerned about how we pay for something like this. And I cannot stress enough when our executives have such high compensation and when the, and when people like the Amazon corporation can rake in as much money as they do, there's money out there. And, and I get it. Like the, you're allowed to be wealthy, you're allowed to acquire for a reason, right? Right. right. There's, yeah. Well, the thing is like the deficit doesn't have to exist even for our government because if we had our death tax in place. And I think the ideal we have to get back to is that, and one of the big solutions I think we have to push out there is that you can't take it with you is a true statement. That was always the ideal. You can't take it with you, right? You can set up your family, you can make them secure, but in the end, it makes sense that you return it back to the state so the state can provide things like UBI because you made an immense amount of wealth, you made great decisions, hooray you when you pass we're not egyptian we can't take it with us into the next life unfortunately so you need to let it go and and you need to be okay with the idea that your family may have to earn their own money and they won't even have to some of these some of the the fortunes right now we're talking about people that will never have to worry even with the death of state taxes in place they yeah. are still just Fine. Yeah, you think universities have endowments. These families have endowments, massive endowments. Well, that's the challenge is who do you talk to? That's, it's strange that we have people that are against universal basic income. And the only people that UBI or any of these policies are bad for is nobody that we really talk to. It's a higher echelon of individuals who have immense wealth that we only see the 
maybe the skirts of, in a sense. We don't really see the people at the top that are pulling these strings who believe that universal basic income is a bad idea that believe that we have to have a you have to have the downtrodden you you must have the poor to have a successful system right that's what we're saying basically and they're afraid of becoming poor i i'm i'm pretty utterly convinced that anybody the way our system is set up is it doesn't matter how much you have you're always going to feel insecure and I, I think, I feel like subconsciously, that's a huge driver for these rich people because they're like, well, they see billions of dollars made and lost every day or whatever. So they're, they probably have this fear that it doesn't matter how much we have, the next downturn is going to take us out or, you know, whatever it is, you, the, because boom and bust, it affects essentially everybody the way the or, system is set up. Or the masses coming for my money, right? Eventually- yeah. They see the inequity, right? So they think the masses are going to come marching for their money and such. So they're worried. So maybe all this breeds fear. But it, I think I'm glad you brought that up because this idea of scarcity is something that, you know, Michael brings up a lot. And I think that we have to really push on it that our solution for UBI means that our children grow up in a world where they don't think about scarcity, that they're not afraid of what they're going to do for a job to make money to get a car to et cetera, et cetera, where they are, where they're, where they're basically birthed into a nurturing society where you're given a chance to succeed in whatever you think is the way you'd like to succeed. It's your choice. We wouldn't be able to encourage risk-taking for people to take risks, to, to discover new things, try different things and be open to failure because well, that's the scientific method. It, it, it breeds competition. Maybe if there were 20 bald men starting a business in their garage, shipping books, we'd have a couple more, you know, big <laughs> shippers to compete with each other, right? We are in a monopoly. I yeah. thought we were against that in the United States, right? So maybe if we had 40 bald men shipping products out of their garage we would have a much better economy a local economy we espouse free markets yeah we espouse free markets right but we don't actually facilitate Allow that them to thrive yeah you're like where's the seed money okay we're all capitalists right okay let's maybe we've called it wrong michael we need ubi is just seed money oh everyone understands that's right that's investing exactly. in people it's that's, that's all it is thank you ray Seed money for all. It's the seed money for all program. Who would have thought? Oh my gosh. We're not speaking to capitalism correctly, capitalists. Um, So we just got to change the verbiage. Folks, think of it as investment in the American people. Yep. And we know um, investments go bust all the time. That's, that's the, that is the way business works. That is why multinationals set up LLCs for all of their new ventures, because they never know what's going to introduce the risk that, that causes failure or whatever, right? So they always insulate their companies by having multiple LLCs. LLCs can be owned by other companies. So that's the best way to shell it out and be like, well, if that uh, if the leader of that company ends up harassing a bunch of women and the company goes down in flames from lawsuits, at least it doesn't take the rest of us down. <laughs> Just as an example, I'm not saying that's why most LLCs are set up um, oh, yeah, to right. insulate a company from sexual harassment, but <clears throat> it's liability protection liability protection it's this is 
this is really i like it i think we need what is it called they need a ubi for dummies so we can teach capitalists why ubi is something you've always wanted Mm -hmm. and all these capitalists who siphon this money and they're sitting on this money and they don't know who to invest in there's like there's not enough angels no there's plenty of angels and not enough good companies to invest in well (laughs) if everybody had seed money they would have way more options right on who on what winners they want to pick and guess what there will be people that leave their industries and we will have but that creates room for others to rise in some ways the industries are a little bit gummy you know the industries are really gummed up people get into a job and stay for 30 and 40 years that is not Mm. really a vibrant economy nor does it encourage growth growth. thank you we said it jinx jinx it's not no and not that we're growth at all cost people but that is you you, if you want you should grow your business just not forever it grows to a saturation point. I mean, Clorox, how much bigger should Clorox and Coca-Cola get? I can't. Why? Because <laughs> the solar system, the whole solar system needs Clorox and Coca-Cola. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. I digress. Once we get Coca-Cola on the moon, you know, when is it enough? And really, if companies were focused on sustainability and the right scale and not dollars and not profit and not shareholder value. So UBI is is not going to take that away. None of that stops, right? What UBI does is, I believe, um, takes away the scarcity fear. So we start de, de- I think we start decommissioning or decompartmentalizing uh, the fear mechanism that is embedded in all of us that causes us to do things: acquire debt, buy expensive cars, buy brands when we get money. What really drives us to acquire and and consumption over sustainment? And I do believe it's this fear of scarcity. And and like Michael said, like you said, it carries, it goes with you all the way to your your adulthood. And when you become mega wealthy, it's still there with you because you've seen nothing but struggle. When children drive on the street and you can say, instead of saying it's the choices the individual made, you can say, it's because they don't want to spend their UBI and that's, you know, they choose to live on the street. They truly choose. Imagine when we have a society where um, children do not have to fear that scarcity and they can understand it and you don't have to blame it on drugs, alcohol, or bad choices because you don't know that individual. And what you do is you program that child to have bias. You program to say all homeless people made a bad choice and we just perpetuate the cycle. So I hate to oversimplify it, but I do believe UBI's greatest power will be the dismantlement of that idea of scarcity and fear that our youth have growing up. You go out of innocence and you suddenly become self-aware and you suddenly become educated and you realize the world is a terrible place with no support for you. Yeah. Yeah, and that causes people to behave in all kinds of way. It causes them to lie, causes them to put things on their resume that aren't there. Like, it's it's really fascinating. Step on others, hold others back because it's the only way they know how to shine. Um, You think about the fairness aspect of thing too, because I I was listening to you the keeping up with the Joneses effect, right? Where either either you're comparing yourself and you're like, well, if that person, I'm smarter than that person. If that person can have a Lexus, I can have a Lexus. I deserve it. I'm going to go get it, right? And that happens over and over and over again. Um, And that's the big risk. It's like because you 
you inherently know there's unfairness. You know that person is doing, they're cutting some corner to get that because you both started at the same place or whatever it is. However you relatively figure it out, you've assessed that somebody is getting more than their fair share and they must be lying, cheating, stealing to do it. And then you're either principled and you stay in the lane and you probably tell yourself, well, I get paid less because I'm principled. I'm not cheating. You know, there, there's all this weird psychology that happens, right? Where we potentially hold ourselves back and we are potentially looking at others with stink eye and, and maybe for good reason. Because, I mean, I would say like the era we just went through and the ilk of the people who want power for power's sake and all of that are the people who've always gotten by on that cheating, lying, stealing, right? And they have been rewarded by that success strategy, unfortunately, in our system. And we need to look at that and divorce it and say, well, those individuals with those motivations, well, again, <clears throat> they're probably motivated by fear and a disrespect for the system because they understand how unfair it allocates resources and how unfairly it allocates wealth. And they're like, well, it, you're, an, you're, a, you're a sucker, Right. Exactly. If you just go to work and you just collect your base salary and you don't ask for more and, you know, whereas the rest of us, we're going to lie, lie, cheat and steal because that's the way if you want to get rich, that's the way you do it. Right. Which isn't true, but it is a is a path is well, a way. It. And we've heard it from past leadership that the past leadership said, I'm smart. I do this because I'm smart. I cheat and I lie. Essentially, they didn't say and those. I don't exact pay taxes. Lie. I don't I pay don't taxes because I'm because smart. I'm smart. And that's the problem is there is a large group of people, excuse me, it's small in comparison to the grand scheme. There's mm -hmm. a small group of people at the top who all think they are the smartest people in the room. And that's always dangerous when you well, all agree with each other. Even in the middle. I mean, that's, and that's what makes it hard for the rest of us because you've got people looking down on others because they're being principled, <clears throat> right? No, yes. just because I have principles I'm, doesn't make me a sucker. And because you lie, cheat, and steal doesn't make you smarter than me. Sorry. Okay, I'm going to get off that soapbox. We need to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear a message from our sponsor, Citizen Do Good. Even though you've heard it before, it's still true. The war is never over and every battle counts. I know you are tirelessly demonstrating good citizenry on the daily through actions and words, and you donate your time and money to causes that count. Thank you. The time is now to deeply re-examine our current implementation of governance for the dawning of a new day. We are a proud sponsor of the Citizens Prerogative Podcast, a major partner in spreading the good word about civic love and the power of change for us all. At Citizen Do Good, we want to empower all citizens to participate in the Republic in a reconstructive way. With that goal in mind, we need your help to stay on mission and grow this community. Please rate the podcast with five stars on iTunes through the app on the web or on your device. If you don't feel like you can give us five stars, let us know why on our sponsor's Facebook page, Citizen Do Good. Like and follow it to help out even further. Also, make sure you join our newsletter at citizendogood.com. You'll get updates every couple of months on all of our antics, not just the podcast. While you're there, check out the shop, which has your favorite merch and provides a way to make a one-time contribution to help us pay for production and hosting. Feel free to share any suggestions you have directly through the Contact Us page. Thanks for your support. I think that we 
have to think about where where like so so how do we action this and there's nothing that we can do as individuals right but what we can do is pull back and say be ready for the conversation let's look at our personal lives and and say where in your personal life have you seen an example of where universal basic income or the principle of it. So let's boil it down. Let's take out the word. So universal basic income is nothing more than a support structure, right? We all have one. Some of us, it's our family. Some of us, it's our, it's our parents. Some of it's, our, it's, maybe it's our spouse. So I'm going to talk about the most common UBI we all know of. Uh, it's called, <laughs> it's called a uh, uh, mother's. It's called stay at home moms, stay at home fathers. It's called homemakers. Okay. That is the first principle. And I, I know we weren't, the government wasn't paying out, right? But it's the ideal that you support another individual, right? So the one individual supported, the income supported both, which allowed the 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 parent to in, nurture that child and to create a better household and to have the, the dinner ready, to spend the family's resources accordingly. And what we argue is that everyone should actually have that choice and right to raise their family. If that's the most important thing they choose to do and their family can live on a universal basic income, we're just saying both parents could take the time off in the sense. But I, I think that's oversimplifying it. I'm gonna to toss it back to Mike who can probably round it out a bit more. No, that's a, that's a great pivot, a great way to position it, Ray. And I appreciate that. Um, home economics, you know, the family. I, I think about that phrase we hear, maybe, maybe it's an old phrase now, but time is money. Well, why is, it, why is time only money for certain people? Why isn't, I mean, we all, time is time. We all get 24 hours in a day. We get X number of years in our lives. Why is somebody's time worth money and someone else's isn't? That doesn't seem fair. <laughs> at a, at a found, fundamental way. Um, so to bring it back to home economics, there is economic value in that time, in those hours that parents invest in their children, um, that children invest in their parents. How many times have you heard parents say the things that kids say? You know, Mike, if, if, if it wasn't for my kid, I would be much more close-minded or I may think differently about certain things, right? It's like, you can't take the commune out of the community. <laughs> it, it's all of us, it's together. And, and if you wanna pick it apart, you can probably find little anecdotal things here and there, but it's trying to divorce you of the idea of togetherness and the fundamental truth that as a society, we only succeed together. This system has pitted us against each other and has created winners, has selected, allowed self-selection for winners and losers and things like that. Um, or, you know, a lot of it's, we, we're not going to talk about rigging today, but if everybody had that opportunity, if everybody was provided for their fundamental needs, it would en enable all of us to take risks, right? It would take, it would enable all of us to become participants in the economy in a way that makes sense to us. And if it makes sense to us, then there's probably others who are going to identify with that, right? I mean, that is the point of going into business or creating a business. You don't necessarily have to have a new product. You, may, you don't have to be the first one to market with a new product to build a successful business. You just need to compete with the existing businesses in that space, 
right? And I'm bringing it back to business because to me, that's the perfect way to tie it back to seed funding, right? And I love that concept that we are seed funding. Our society in the United States has decided to seed fund every family because every brain counts. Every brain is a microprocessor to to, to catapult our nation, our society, our group of people in this world ahead of others, which is a desirable place to be collectively because of wars and everything that's mounting. Like the future is not pretty. <laughs> I mean, hopefully it is, but we can see the steady march, right? It's, this, isn't, this isn't something history hasn't taught us before. We, it's not something we haven't just done in the last 100 years, 200 years. I'm glad you brought the history up because the truth of the matter is that when we did the last major, major movement in, in social policies uh, with, with the Medicare and Social Security, right, it was to protect the nation's most vulnerable well, we, we've, we've done that in a sense, but it, to try to read it up, then the nation's now most vulnerable, I would argue, are our children. Youth. The youth, right? Youth. right? Moving into adulthood, facing this world, traveling and, and trying to experience um, a new town or a new college or school. Wouldn't it be nice to know that they had a little bit of help? And that you didn't have to, to, to support that, that the government was there unless your family is so endowed, which is terrific for your family. But this is, this is a game changer and this will change our children. None of us are going to benefit. That's why we have to all get over it. Like you yeah. can't see the benefits because for us. we're all so cynical, right? We're yeah. all philosophers right now. We're thinking about something deep, but children 30, 40 years from now will wonder how we were so savage financially with each other. They will wonder. And I think that, again, to, to kind of wrap it up, we've tried to find these examples in your own life. I personally know um, two people, um, an artist and a banker, and I've seen an experience where the banker being steady and financially, uh, financially secure allowed artists to create. And I think that when you see that happen, it happens throughout industries. I brought it up before, but mm -hmm. the Harry Potter entire industry theme parks and everything came out of what you would deem socialism which is basically supplemental income we haven't mentioned it much it was a, it's basically a, i think a what the the individuals on food stamps i believe um and the individual was on welfare so yeah. that is something and not in the united states unfortunately no. maybe we could have had a franchise that big again yeah. seed money yeah, and it's funny because you bring that up and I, I forgot because we had talked, we were going to bring up an anecdotal example to make it real for people um, because this isn't a new concept. We do it today. We just don't label it. We don't think about it consciously and it's co totally divorced from the greater economy. Um, but couples all the time, I mean, especially in the gay world, but I'm, I imagine in all worlds, straight or otherwise, where you're like you you have a, there's a couple of people and one person works and one stays at home takes care of kids or whatever right but in the gay world we don't always have kids and stuff like that so it's a little bit different but in many 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 couple situations you see that there's an individual essentially that's kind of considered a breadwinner and then there's an individual that that explores something that's alternative to breadwinning 
right? And so you think about the banker and the artist because it's a great dichotomy. It's a great juxtaposition because you think of bankers as being really wealthy and you think of artists always being starving and struggling. And, and so you have these relationships, you have these communities already happening on the ground, but these are individuals, these are chosen families. These are individuals who've, who've, who've met each other and decided to throw in together, right? They're creating basically any couple that gets married creates their own company <laughs> one way or another, right? Things are pooled, assets are pooled. And so you see the value of what can come out of having support, right? Everyone does, right? It, it really, and whether you're looking at, you know, the child who grew up and had more support than another child, you can see the differences, um, or a spouse who has more support, right, than other spouses or, or anything like that. But, but the idea that there's an investment happening there, um, but it's a personal choice, the banker's deciding, you know, and, and it, it, with no expectation of any return. This is not an investment like a business investment. This is an investment in people. And when you invest in people, you, you it's not a business, right? So you don't expect a financial return. You shouldn't. That's my theory. Um, but that doesn't mean you don't invest in people because you don't know what intangible rewards come out of it, including amazing art and, and murals and, and things that are available to the public, you know, that wouldn't be there otherwise. I think that the if you see growth right that's what the right now it's not about it's not about what you're going to get it's about you're seeing that growth and that beauty so for your children everyone in our lives say they i know so many people they say i just want my children to have better than i had mm. i just want my children to have more than i had and and so can't we all agree that that's what ubi is it's an ideal that everyone would actually have better than I had. So it's not just your children. It's, it's pulling it one level outside of, of just your, your, your own family and saying, um, yeah, like, because that means your child has it, right? If everybody has it, that means your child has it and you have it. And you don't have to be afraid of a boss or a person yeah. in a position of power. I think more than anything, this is true freedom. UBI, I think, scares all of the people in power it scares anyone who has any bit of, of, of any control and, and the card in this economy, right? Those competitions going to come from, it's going to create all kinds of competition and you don't want that, right? It's you, it's really, you want nice. your monopoly. I want my monopoly. I want to control everything. <laughs> and we're not trying and again, you can't level the playing field in a good capitalism. It'll never be level. However, no. the playing field, like any good game should constantly be, redone re-leveled make sure it's surface redraw the lines right that takes money that takes investment while these mounds may build up and these slides in the economy if you will we still have to come back and condition it and bring it back to its it the home base everything's supposed to be level everything's supposed to be even for a good game for a proper game of capitalism and that's what we're looking for is a proper game of capitalism because even in monopoly you get the pass go. So all of us understand this economics. The game doesn't work without pass go. And guess what? You can still get rich in monopoly, even with everyone with universal basic income. And I hate to oversimplify it, but it sure as heck works there. We agree to, that it's fair enough, right? We have to do a whole episode just on the monopoly game because I found out the monopoly game we play today is not the monopoly game that was invented. 
Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. That's for another episode. <laughs> That's a good one. We'll have to remember that. I'm going to put that one down. Monopoly, yeah. history. We can just do one episode on that. There's a little behind the scenes for you folks as we take notes and such. But again, we're probably over time, which is, which is great. Thank you so much, uh, again, everyone, for going with us on this journey. Universal basic income is going to be a constant conversation. Do not think this is something that will be settled easily. And please engage in these conversations, but arm yourself uh, with real-life examples. And again, it's as simple as the stay-at-home mom. Not to say that it's a simple situation, but to say that we've been doing it all this time, investing in people, seed money in individuals. We do it with our children families, friends that we loan money to or gift money to. Every financial gift you hand off to a youth, is that not seed? As seed. Very much. Thank you, Ray, for that call to action. Open your eyes, everybody. Keep an eye out. Look for these examples. Look for scenarios in your daily life where seed funding would help, could have helped, where you see seed funding happening today, but it's not something we pay attention to or call out. Just as Ray's thrown out some examples there, you know, when, when we're helping each other out, every time you put money in that donation box, you know, think about that, that seed funding for a program that's supposed to be taken care of for us. So keep in mind, there's these, this, this concept is already here. We deploy it in society because it's valuable and useful. And we do want to care for one another. It's a part of our innate. It's a part of our innate characteristics as a species, you know. And people want to say, "Oh, what will people do if they're just given money? They're going to do what they want to do, and it's going to be something." Because humans aren't born to do nothing. That is true. Science bears that out. Humans, idle. I, I, humans are just generally we're not idle creatures. That is not if what we're born to do. Them. If you enable, not if you enable them, and that's what we're saying is activate and enable. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is this is not this is not communism because no. in 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 a capitalist system, this would be all you get. It's just the right amount to survive. You know, it's enough for a tiny home. It's enough for the basics. And we're not saying that anyone people will get rich off of this. Let's let's not be. People will do good things with this money. But there'll be plenty of individuals who will just live off the UBI for the rest of their days. But at least they're not in the streets. At least they're not harming you. And if they are in the streets being crazy, you will know and you can finally judge appropriately because you pay your taxes to support your fellow man. Not judge them because you judge. Yeah, because it makes you feel better maybe. (laughs) Who knows? There's a lot of motivations there. We don't want to judge you. We'll just judge ourselves. Okay, I'll try not to judge. I'm working on it. I'm the most judgy of us too, but thank you. No problem. That's going to do us for today. We're a little bit over. It's okay. We have been your hosts. Thank you to Mr. Raymond Wong Jr. And thank you, Mr. Piscatelli. It has truly been a universal basic debate. It's been something that's for sure. I really love it. For information on this and other episodes, head over to citizendogood.com and click on podcast. While you're there, hit up our contact us page and leave a comment. We'd love to hear from the community. 
we'd like to give special thanks to you, our listeners. We save the best for last. You are the best. You have been for years. Thank you for your support. We know it's painful and we love you. Intro music sampled from OK Class by Ozzy Jock under Creative Commons license through freemusicarchive.org. Other music provided royalty-free through Fizzling Studios, Inc. Thank you.